to the inaugural episode of the Vichipedia podcast. Woo! Uh, while my newsletter, the Vichipedia Weekly, is meant to give you a quick read of what's going on in the Eastern European neighborhood, if you're not subscribed yet, by the way, check it out at tinyletter.com slash I am hoping that this monthly podcast will be a bit of a deeper dive into some of the most important topics in the region with some of its most interesting experts. We're still going to keep things light and fun. Uh, Just FYI, I'm drinking wine while I'm recording this. Cheers. Today we're talking about Donald Trump. Reactions to Trump in Eastern Europe, how Donald Trump is displaying some really worrisome autocratic tendencies, ones that come right out of the playbook of some of the leaders Eastern Europe has seen in the past century, ones that we thought were only reserved for the worst of the worst. Our president keeps good company. But, along with my guests today, journalists Ilya Lozovsky and Lily Baer, we are also going to be talking about hope. I didn't realize it when I invited them on the podcast, but we are all products of immigrant families. My own grandfather was deported by the Soviet Union from his native Poland at the age of 10, and for 12 years, until he moved to the U.S. with his family, he didn't have a home. He was sent to work camps, he trekked across Central Asia, he traveled with armies, and somehow, during those harrowing experiences, he learned to speak perfect English and became one of the smartest, most inquisitive people I ever met. He started a successful business and was a leader in his community, and 40 years later, he sat with his Polish-American granddaughter on his lap and told her she could be president one day if she wanted. Jury's still out on that. More than 75 years since he became a refugee, that same granddaughter is sitting in Ukraine on a U.S. government grant, marveling about how differently it all could have turned out if her grandfather hadn't been allowed to settle in the U.S. So, we'll be talking about Trump today, sure. But really, as I play back the recording of three Eastern Europe nerds geeking out, what's really remarkable to me is the very Americanness of us all, and how our family's immigrant and refugee stories have put us on the path of do-gooding that we're all on today. Enjoy. All right, our first guest today is Ilya Lazovsky, a newly minted editor at the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, also known as some of the guys and girls who were central in the release of the Panama Papers. Before joining OCCRP, Ilya was the assistant editor at Foreign Policy's Democracy Lab, and for the past couple of years, I've been lucky to call him one of my best friends. Hi, Ilya. Hi, Nina. Glad to be chatting with you. Yeah, of course. So... One of the things we've been talking about, and um, we, we talked about this with Lily as well, is kind of our, our immigrant and refugee status in the wake of the Trump administration's decision to ban Muslims, uh, Muslim refugees from entering the country. And uh, you were born in Russia. I was. You've written about the indifference that some people in the Jewish community in the U.S. have expressed toward refugees. So in the context of your own background, how do you feel about the Trump administration's Muslim ban? Uh, well, I think it's appalling. I mean, I think this has been widely discussed, but uh, aside from the specific practical issues, such as the fact that the countries facing the ban have not actually, none of the, their citizens have actually committed any terrorist acts in the United States, aside from the practical issues, it's sort of a large stinging rebuke to the values on which America was founded. And, um, you know, there are many countries that have a lot of problems welcoming people from other cultures, including many democratic, you know, European countries, it's hard for them to assimilate. But the United States has historically never had that problem. And the United States has only been strengthened by its ability to welcome and integrate people from all over the world. And they've made this country stronger. So uh, to me, it's just, uh, it's just 
so counterproductive and so beyond even being offensive. It's just so counterproductive and ahistorical. Yeah. Have you been doing a lot of thinking about like your own your own story and, and how that fits into the American narrative and when what it means, like what how that is contextualized now, given what's happened? What really struck me was when green card holders especially were for a while at least, for a few days, unable to enter the country because I was a green card holder for a while. I didn't actually, many of my fellow ex-Soviet Jews came as refugees, but I was lucky enough not to have to go down that path. My mom was offered a job in uh, Washington University in St. Louis, so we actually came not through a refugee program. So that part is like sort of outside my experience, but I did hold a green card until 1999 when I became a citizen. And I did travel on that green card with my high school class. We went to Europe, you know, we did some other trips. And, uh, you know, it was a little, I, I'll, at that time already, I was aware of being the different kid because everybody else had their American, blue American passport. And I had my Soviet travel document and with my American green card uh, attached. And, um, you know, I knew that that was different. It never really caused me any problems at the time, but it's really scary to, uh, these, you know, for someone with my experience and with refugee experience, that whole thing of crossing borders and encountering customs and border guards and handing over your documents and waiting there for the person to look at them. It's like a kind of a scary experience. And, uh, I just, it's thinking of people, families who are separated. It was just, um, really hard, really hard for me to uh, hear about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's crazy, too, because you, you think of the U.S. border as like the easy one, right? But but any of the people we know with this background are now probably, uh, you know, afraid to present their documents at a border that sh- that shouldn't be uh, shouldn't be as a string. Well, not a stringent, but should be more welcoming than than it is right now. Exactly. And, you know, we can now hope that uh, given what's going on in the courts, that uh, this uh, Trump's action won't really be implemented. Um, but there are other troubling signs too on the borders. There's reports that journalists are being asked sometimes to uh, hand over passwords to their social media accounts. Mm. Um, there was some talk in the White House of being more stringent about that and being more, especially for non-U.S. citizens, and of actually, you know, interrogating journalists more harshly. And you know, for as a journalist and as someone who works with journalists who work on very sensitive information you know people we have to protect our sources we have to protect the information it's the first thing you learn it's something you're always practicing how to be safer and better about keeping your data secure making sure you don't give anything away you're not supposed to and now coming back to you know i don't really expect this to happen to me necessarily but the prospect that i could come back to my own country and at the border of my own united states uh being you know asked to hand over passwords and have someone rifling through my social media and my posts and, you know, scanning for what political content. I mean, it's, Mm. uh, it's kind of appalling. It's not really something anybody I think hoped or expected to see in the United States in the 21st century, but that's the moment we're in now. Well, and both of us have worked at NGOs that help democratic and civil society activists. And this is so- the sort of thing that we would prepare them for when they were, you know, maybe maybe coming back uh, from the States, from a trip to the States, back to their countries, their autocratic countries, you know, how to how to protect the information that they learned. We would often not give them any, um, you know, physical papers from trainings, perfectly legal, normal, democratic, freedom-loving trainings that they went to just so that they wouldn't get in trouble at the border. And now that's something we have to worry about uh, at our own country. Hopefully it doesn't last too long. Hopefully this is just a hiccup, but I, I think I'm 
through with giving them the benefit of the doubt at, at this moment. Um, but that does bring me to my next uh, next little nice segue here. Um, I wanted to talk to you about what you think some of the scariest actions are that the Trump administration has taken. We, You and I talked a little bit offline about the uh, David Frum piece in The Atlantic, How to Build an Autocracy. And uh, I thought the one quote at the, he kind of starts out, if you haven't read the piece uh, for those listening, describing a little bit of a 1984 Orwellian uh, situation four years into the Trump administration where Trump is being re-inaugurated. And um, it was really chilling just because of it put in context the trends that we're familiar with from, from our own time in post-Soviet autocratic states, but in the context of the United States. And the quote that really got me was, the smart thing to do is tune out the political yammer, mind your own business, enjoy a relatively prosperous time, and leave the questions to the troublemakers. Which to me, having worked on Belarus before, really just, it it, it sounded like Belarus to me. Um, and that that just really freaked me out. Yeah, I mean, I think I would sort of push back a little bit about the analogy to 1984. And not that you made this analogy, but a lot of other people are talking about fascism and describing um, Trump's actions in the context of, you know, this is what happened in 1930s Nazi Germany. And I think it's important. One of the things I think David Frum's piece was so great on was describing a very particular modern form. I don't even know if I would really call it authoritarianism, but it's a system it's a new modern system. Trump is not, I don't think Trump has a coherent enough ideology to be called a fascist or really anything else. I think he's more of a crooked businessman and he's opportunistic and he'll ally himself with whoever allies with him. And I think a lot of the things described in that piece that the Trump administration is, I think the Trump administration is contributing to a breakdown of American politics that has been ongoing anyway. And I think some of this, so for me, you know, some of the scariest things that are happening are not specific actions that the Trump administration is taking. Um, one reason is that you can see that our checks and balances still work to a large extent. I mean, the courts are pushing back. The Trump administration is obeying the courts. Um, and his foreign policy, as soon as he got some more experienced advisors around himself in the past week, his foreign policy has started to look much more sort of traditional and quote unquote, normal rather than the crazy things he was saying on the campaign trail. So I actually am hopeful. I mean, I think we all have to be vigilant and push back um, against any anti-democratic actions that his administration takes. But I'm hopeful that our checks and balances are still strong enough to contain him and limit the damage. But what I'm scared of is that broader aspects of our political system are becoming more and more dysfunctional. And the thing I think that I've read that scared me the most was um, an initiative. I think it was, I can't actually remember right now. I think it was either Virginia or North Carolina, one of those states to um, re to change the way presidential elections work so that electoral votes are distributed based on congressional districts. I hope yeah, I'm that was that Virginia. Right, but it was Virginia. And My that, home me, state. Yeah. And on one, <laughs> on the surface, that's, um, a good change, you know, because we are strange electoral college system. You know, if you win 51% of a state's votes, you get all the electors. And this is an attempt to change that. But the point is the congressional districts are gerrymandered. So this will actually disenfranchise uh, Democratic voters, African-American voters, you know, urban voters. And these kind of actions are what can lead to the situation David Frum describes where 
and the, we're from we you and I are familiar with this in the post-Soviet world where a lot of the pieces of a democratic system are in place and it looks democratic to the casual observer and if you're not mm-hmm. you know sort of highly trained and an expert in these issues it's sort of hard to object i mean this is what democracy looks like to you but the effect is that one party has a stranglehold on power and you yeah. know this happened in you know mexico had a system like this for much of the 20th century one party was in power even though they had regular elections russia you know has regular elections all even all even you know mm-hmm. belarus has elections but the point <laughs> is the system is rigged and i'm afraid that uh with gerrymandering and with the sort of uh you know i mean as we all say hillary clinton you know won what 3 million more votes than trump and we accept that as part of the system but the disparity seems to be getting worse and if the republicans are able to lock in more of these sort of different administrative measures i just recently read another example that happened in poland where the um conservative you know right wing ruling government now wants to change the administrative division of warsaw to expand it basically Mm-hmm. so that the liberal voters in Warsaw are drowned out by the more conservative votes in the suburbs and the point of that is of course to uh you know disenfranchise opposing voters and help the people on your side and that kind of stuff is what i'm most worried about because the danger is that it will really make elections non-competitive and i'll have one more example is um you know everyone's wondering why why are the why is congress so seems so eager to go along with Trump. And I mean, he's broken so many norms. He's obviously unfit for the office. He's um doing great damage to our democracy and our values and I think most people, even many conservatives will agree with that. So why is it so hard to get members of Congress, especially on the Republican side to stand up to him? He's historically unpopular. Um and it seems like it would be in their interest and the answer unfortunately is it's it's not in their interest because most uh representatives come from districts that are not electorally competitive they're not scared of getting beaten by a democrat in the next election they're scared of being primaried from the right because of the way these districts have been gerrymandered there're no more they'll every election is only between who can energize the more conservative the more extreme voters and it's not just on the republican side this happens on the democratic side too the problem is that the more the larger a percentage of these elections that are uncompetitive yeah the more the less incentive there is to cooperate and have some kind of bipartisan consensus on anything and this is the same thing that led to you know the debate in the last few years about raising the debt ceiling and all this kind of unprecedented stuff that kind of has really shown that um I think more than anything else congress has become the most dysfunctional branch of government and that's what I'm most scared of and that's what's enabling Trump to do much of the damage that he's doing and after he's gone I'm afraid that problem will remain and I'm uh you know it's uh, hard to imagine how to solve it. Yeah. And one absolutely. more thing if I may. Sorry. Yeah. I'm talking, <laughs> no, no. talking a lot. Uh, one thought just keeps leading to the other. Um another problem with that is that it makes politics seem like a crooked game rather than something somebody sh- would want to participate in. Yeah. And we're seeing already historically high levels of disengagement. Young, young people aren't voting very much. We saw a lot of this in this election with people comparing Trump and Hillary Clinton side by side and deciding well a pox on both their houses you know everyone's corrupt it's all, it's this kind of cynicism that the game is rigged and i think that's a scary sign for especially for us who see this as one of the fundamental problems in countries like russia that people 
don't believe that their participation and engagement can make a meaningful difference. And in some cases, they're right, but it's a collective action problem because if everybody thought that their participation could make a difference, then everyone would participate and then things would change very quickly. And when government here has become so dysfunctional, it makes people tune out and it only lowers the number of people who participate and that makes it easier for some of these actors to continue to make these changes and to you know cement their hold on power. So I think that cynicism is a huge danger in the United States and you see it, I think, I don't really know how to, in a historical perspective, but just over my lifetime, I think you're seeing it more and more. So I think if there's anything to point to that I would say of how we could reverse these trends, I think, you know, I think more engagement, teaching people, reaching people and teaching them about civics, about how democratic government is supposed to work and encouraging them that yes, if they do participate, it does make a difference and it's essential that they do so. And I think really cynicism is the, is what will kill us if anything will. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the Democrats are presented with an interesting kind of conflict here because a lot of the folks who are participating in the resistance are asking them to block, essentially do what the Republicans did and block the Trump administration from governing, block all of these cabinet appointments, many of which are just ludicrous, of course, but um, they, they are supposed to be not necessarily inhibiting government and governance from happening. Um, so they just have this paradox, and it's uh, interesting, if not worrying, to see how they're they're grappling with it. Um, one of my own senators, uh, unfortunately, voted for Rex Tillerson, which and and gave a very pasty statement about you know why he thought he was a good man for the job and blah blah blah. Um, and after having called him about this, I, I was very uh, very upset about that just because I understand what he's trying to do. He he did end up voting against DeVos. You know he he doesn't want to throw all his eggs in one basket. But on the other hand, um, are we are we then as the Democratic Party condoning this behavior? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, that's uh, something I've thought about too, and I don't know how to answer it. Um, yeah. On the one hand you see a lot more pressure from the left to, you know, to, you know, have a spine, stand up to Trump. You know, the Republicans obstructed Obama's agenda for eight years. Now Trump is in power and you're saying we should work with him. Are you crazy? And I can definitely see the merits of that argument. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, do we want to be contributing to the same problem? Yeah. Uh, so it's, uh, honestly, I have something I don't have an answer for. I'm going to keep thinking about it, yeah. but, um, and then going back to what you were saying before about the uh, gerrymandering, even what's been really troubling to me on some social media accounts of like random yoga teachers that I follow, people are getting in these weird <laughs> political discussions and, uh, you know, these complex arguments about um, how our electoral system should work, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> those aren't trickling down to the normal populace. But what is, is Trump's tweet about California and how if California didn't exist, he would have won the popular vote by however million votes and it's just so troubling to me that people are willing to say like uh well if california didn't exist those guys count less than us you know screw california who cares about what those millions of people in the state in our country voted for you know they just don't matter because they disagree with us and and that's just uh i think on on a very basic level the this is the yoga teacher saying california shouldn't exist <laughs> this is not how i usually no. picture yoga teachers no, it's uh, it's it's not yoga teachers. It's the people who follow them, which is even uh, not and not all of them. There's just the you know they're they're engaging in these political discussions, but people are like, your candidate lost, blah blah blah. And if California didn't exist, we would have won the popular vote. And it's like, how can you that you're just disenfranchising an entire state of people? Um, and and it's it's just scary because that means that this 
argument about uh, the the cities or the more populous areas uh, disenfranchising those who live in less populous areas has trickled down in a way um, that I think is really dangerous. You know, I think our mission is clear. We need to mobilize the yoga teachers. <laughs> but yeah, you're, you're right. I think um, this is something I've written about before. Um, in an article, if anyone is interested, called Facebooking Ourselves to Death on Foreign Policy. Mm, I recall that one, yes. Uh, about how we are not all living in the same factual universe anymore. Yeah. Because we used to in we used to have, you know, the news networks and the major newspapers and everybody sort of read the same media and we we maybe didn't agree on values all the time, of course, but at least we lived in the same universe of facts. But now with the bubbles you know, that have been widely discussed already. And it's not just fake news um, because fake news can probably be taken care of in some way or other. And I think Facebook and other services are already working on it, but it's like the hyper-partisan news that's not really outright fake, but the only, they're not trying to inform their readers. They're trying to just mobilize the convinced partisans. And if all your friends are sharing these things and you're, you know, n not perhaps the most sophisticated media consumer and you're just clicking on those and not really questioning what the sources are, and um, you just start to like go down this path of where pretty soon it's hard to even engage in conversation with the other side, you know, around the proverbial Thanksgiving dinner table with your uncle who has a different political view because you're just not living in the same universe. There's like no overlap between what you can discuss anymore. And yeah. I think that's really scary. And I think that we really need to think about what role our education system needs to play yeah. in terms of educating people to be savvier consumers of media. Because I've been shocked sometimes, like you'd think, you know, if you're a reasonably educated, smart person, uh, you should be able to figure this stuff out. But I've been surprised. People just don't have expertise. It's something like anything else that you need expertise in to be able to distinguish what's a good news source and what's not. And, you know, I know people who are PhDs in other fields who like will share stuff on Facebook that I can't believe they think is credible, but they really don't know the difference. And it's not, you know, a knock against them. It's just, we need to do a better job of helping people understand how to consume the news in a yeah. smarter way. And um, I think we really need to think about what role our education system can play. There have been some really interesting projects in Ukraine about this, and you, you know I'm researching this a little bit as part of my, my Fulbright, but um, one of the most interesting things that has been done here is just telling people what the signs are of an article that is not credible. And one of them is if and it elicits an emotional response just from the headline or first, first paragraph, like the lead. Uh, that is a good indication of whether or not uh, this is a trustworthy news source. If it really gets you riled up, uh, there's a good chance that you should count to 10, look at where it's coming from, and uh, try to double-check the source and see if you can find it from somewhere else credible. But the problem now is, of course, that on the other side, and, and you know, we might say the same thing about Fox, or uh, certainly Breitbart, and I think with good reason, but uh, people on the right think the same thing about the New York Times and NPR. Um, and yep, I don't know, equivalent. yeah, I don't know how we repair that gap. And then in terms of, you know, education is, is, I agree that we need to do something in that regard so that future generations are better equipped to deal with this problem. But then how do we engage the people who are our age and we're getting into these, you know, people, people are making a good faith effort now to engage with that random high school classmate who, who is from the other side of the aisle. But how do you 
keep it from devolving into something that's just not helpful because everything I'm seeing is just attacking one another, just like on these yoga teacher page, which is not very yogic, I might add. (laughs) Um, Yes. And I think, again, one of the problems is with the media ecosystem we have now. One of the reasons the New York Times is, um, on the one hand, such a great newspaper and on the other hand, so mistrusted by so many people is because uh, in our age of sort of media you know, we used to ha- it used to be that every even medium and small city had a pretty decent newspaper and yeah. papers like the Boston Globe, the Chicago Tribune, the L.A. Times used to have, you know, their own foreign correspondence, their own. Um, they just had a lot more resources at their disposal than they do now. And they had they were able to cover local stuff and national stuff. So they earned trust among their local readers in whatever city they happened to be in. And then sort of became a credible news source, you know, if there were a good paper for both left and right. Now that those papers, those sort of mid-tier papers have withered away to a large extent, we on the coast have come to rely on the New York Times and the Washington Post because they have grown stronger. They, you know, it's sort of uh, the money has flowed to them. They figured out how to do it and it's, they do amazing journalism, but they don't have the ability to convince someone in, uh, you know, Houston or Milwaukee or something that they are a credible source because they don't cover those local stories and they cover the national news and it enables those people to begin to distrust the paper because they don't see it as a credible source of news. And now if, and you know, I think there are efforts underway for both the times and the posts and other papers to cover the interior of the country more. And I think they've seen after the election that they need to do that, but there's only so much, you know, one or two newspapers can do. If there were healthier local news organizations that were professional journalists and able to speak, cover the issues that are of concerns to these voters, I think the situation would be better. And I don't know, this is something the media people are going to have to figure out how to survive in these new times of like, you know, internet trying to get revenue on the internet. And I'm hopeful of some, that some models will emerge that can work. Maybe some kind of nonprofit local models, some kind of getting funded from an endowment or figuring out, you know, some papers I've figured out how to make money from subscriptions. So hopefully it's not impossible. But for now we are in this kind of dark, sort of dark place. Yeah, it's such an interesting uh, challenge just because not only from uh, looking at it through the lens of our, you know, post-Soviet background, but also because both of us used to work in assistance, foreign assistance, and now it's like taking that model and turning it on its head uh, and trying to apply it to our own country, which is scary, but also, again, leaves me with some hope because we know how to do this, you know, this is this is who we are as people. Um, so... Here's here's hoping that yes. it's not all for naught. Let's end on a positive note. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. All right. Thank you, Ilya. Um, so once again, everybody, this is Ilya Lazovsky. You can check him out on Twitter at IkbinIlya, right? That's right. All right. I'll put a link in the show notes. Thanks. Thank you, Nina. Great to talk to you as always. All right, so we are here with Lily Bayer, who is a freelance journalist based in Budapest. Hi, Lily. Hi, Nina. It's really great to have you. So I met Lily when we were both at Georgetown. Lily was a very uh, intrepid undergrad taking some grad classes. (laughs) Um, And one of the things that I didn't know about you while we were in class together uh, was that at the time, right, you you weren't an American citizen. That's right. So I came to the U.S. when I was nine, but it took me over 13 years to actually get my citizenship. So can you tell us a little bit about what that process was like, why you ended up in the U.S., and and kind of how that 
all came into your story as you are right now? Yeah, so my family came to the U.S. originally for a two-year period uh, for my dad's job, and we really loved living in the U.S., so we ended up extending and eventually getting a green card and citizenship, but that process was incredibly long, bureaucratic, and uh, financially costly uh, once we realized that we wanted to stay. Uh, even for us, we came from Israel. It was a very, very complicated process, um, and uh, I remember when I was nine, you know, walking into uh, my fourth grade class, not understanding what anyone around me was saying and uh, just seeing how welcoming those kids were. And some of them are still my friends today. Yeah. And and um, just as a as an immigrant, how do you feel about Trump's policies right now um, towards not only uh, the Muslim ban, but an immigration in general? Um, what, what does that do for you as a, a fairly newly minted American citizen? Well, uh, for me and my family, this ban was incredibly personal, not only because we ourselves are immigrants in the U.S. and are uh, friends with a lot of other immigrant families uh, who went through difficult uh, processes to become U.S. citizens or to get to the green cards, but also um, because we have refugees who are essentially a part of our family. My parents, for the past few years, have been a part of the D.C. Um, foster system, specifically as foster parents for unaccompanied child refugees. Um, that is through uh, Lutheran Social Services. And um, I can't go into details of the children who they fostered for privacy reasons, but um, there are children in this program from countries like Afghanistan and Congo who are orphans who came to the U.S. on their own, who were granted refugee status, who went through uh, horrible experiences with uh, you know, war and poverty. Some of them grew up in refugee camps and took care of their siblings um, after their parents were murdered or died. Um, and, and so knowing some of these children personally has made the ban you know, very difficult to grapple with. Wow. Wow. And that's that's just such a good uh, example of the types of things that immigrants really contribute to our society. Right. It's not just uh, that they're coming and, and as as the Trump administration seems to say, kind of just pillaging the the plenty of of, of American society. But your 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 family is really giving back uh, in a way that is meaningful and creating the same opportunities that you had for for young children who wouldn't otherwise have those opportunities. I think that being immigrants has made um, my, my parents especially very sensitive to uh, issues, uh, especially with people coming to a new country, a new place, um, you know, not really knowing uh, what's going on around them and helping them integrate, helping them start a new life. And um, my mom especially, she's the daughter of Holocaust survivors. So I think that for her, um, seeing children who were left on their own and who, who went through war and grew up in refugee camps is, um, you know, especially difficult. And, you know, she, she wants to help. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And was that your, your grandparents um, that are from Hungary? That uh, That's your Hungarian roots? or? Yes. So uh, my, uh, grandfa- my Hungarian grandfather was in forced labor during the war and my grandmother, she was deported to Bergen-Belsen camp um, and she survived along with her sisters and her parents. Um, but uh, throughout her life, you know, that that experience really defined how she saw the world, and you know she she really talked 
Um, she didn't like talking about the war, but she would talk about needing to help others um, who are less fortunate and uh, who are in need and, and the importance of, you know, um, reaching out a hand um, in difficult times. So I think all of us, even though she passed away last year, really remember remember those lessons. Yeah, absolutely. My grandfather had a similar story, which I think we've talked about before. So he uh, was deported with his family from Poland when um, when he was 10 uh, and spent his his late childhood in refugee camps uh, and and also work camps in the Soviet Union um, and and came and started a, a really successful business in the states had a family you know here I am now in in Ukraine on US government money um, I, I think he would be really proud of that uh, and and even though he in his time and again this was many years ago he, he died when I was 13 but I, he was he was you know a fiscal Republican but I don't think he would in any way shape or form support the policies that the Trump administration is putting forward now um, because of his own experience. So I think, uh, you know, people have lost touch with uh, with what's going on and 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 kind of their own roots um, and how everyone's origin story uh, in the United States is is an immigrant or refugee story at its core. Definitely. And uh, here in Hungary, where I work right now, mostly um, I got to go to some refugee camps and talk to people who are Kurds who fled IS held territory or, you know, are from African countries where um, they were the victims of political repression. And, you know, hearing those stories and hearing the fear in their voices when they, they talk about their home countries it has has been incredibly powerful. And I think that um, sometimes it's easy um, to to see statistics and to to forget that these are, you know, individuals with individual stories and fears. Mm. And so that's one thing that Orban and Trump have in common, right? Their their reaction to refugees. Can you tell us a little bit about what the climate is like right now? Um, what give us a little background on what what happened originally when the refugee crisis started in Hungary and how uh, how that's manifesting itself now under the Trump administration? Right. So uh, Hungary was a major route originally for refugees coming northward uh, through the Balkans, uh, trying to reach Austria and Germany. Um, during the peak of the crisis, um, there were people camped out throughout train stations in Hungary, people walking along the roads. But the government has cracked down. They've built a wall. Um, they've essentially militarized the border with Serbia. It's now incredibly difficult to cross that border. And um, it is incredibly difficult for refugees, even if they try to um, go through the process and um, properly legally ask for asylum in Hungary, um, it's nearly impossible for them to really um, to get the asylum and to navigate through the Hungarian system. Um, right now, there are relatively few refugees in Hungary. They are um, in camps. And um, over the next two weeks, reportedly, um, the government will be cracking down further, um, essentially closing uh, access to those camps in, in such a way that refugees won't be able to even go on walks outside. They will be uh, completely closed in those camps while their cases are being heard. And as I mentioned, most of these cases just get stuck in the system um, and ultimately get rejected. Wow. And then what happens to them? Are they deported back to their home countries? 
Um, that is the government's aim. Um, they'd like to see more deportations. Um, uh, right now, a lot of people are in limbo, and um, the, the government is trying to, um, they are increasingly trying to um, set aside EU and international norms and regulations for hearing asylum cases and for how to assess those asylum cases, because um, they want to accept as few people as possible. Yeah, yeah. And what has the reaction been uh, to Trump's election in Hungary, um, given the similarity of the policies there? Uh, the Hungarian government is incredibly fond of President Trump. In fact, uh, Prime Minister Viktor Orban was the first European leader to endorse Trump during the campaign back in July. Wow. That was pretty early. Were there any other uh, leaders that did that? I don't even, I can't even recall a single one. Everyone else tried to stay out of it to some extent, right? <laughs> um, there are some European leaders who are fond of Trump's policies, for example, in the Czech Republic, President Zeman. Um, I think that uh, European uh, politicians who are um, right-wing Eurosceptics or who tend to be more pro-Russia um, also tend to be um, mm -hmm. pro-Trump. And uh, have, have Orban and Trump spoken on the phone at all or anything? They have, and uh, Prime Minister Orban said that the talk went great. Um, essentially, Orban is presenting uh, the Trump presidency as a new opportunity for Hungary, as a kind of new era, because U.S.-Hungarian relations have not been very good over the past years um, due to the Prime Minister's, um, what, what some critics believe are increasingly autocratic tendencies. The State Department has openly criticized Hungary on a range of issues, um, especially when it comes to freedom of the press. Um, and so uh, Prime Minister Orban sees uh, a Trump presidency as a new opportunity for um, a relationship with a U.S. government that he believes will not care as much about democratic norms or freedom of the press or the independence of the judiciary, um, a government that will essentially um, turn a blind eye to what Hungary is doing um, internally. Yeah, and you've lived in Hungary for at least a year now, right? I've been in here on and off. Um, I, I work mostly uh, here in Budapest and in the region, um, and I go back to the U.S. occasionally. Um, but what I have seen is that um, you know, Orban's opposition, the liberal opposition, is incredibly worried about what a Trump presidency means for the entire region, um, because they, especially when it comes to countries like Poland, um, they think that the um, moderating uh, influence that the U.S. government has had on these governments over the past few years will go away and that will leave governments in the region more free to crack down on the opposition and on the press without really having to worry about international criticism. Yeah, and and Orban certainly has, has done his fair share of cracking down on the press. Are there any worrying parallels that you see in the first couple of weeks of the Trump presidency with actions that the Orban administration has taken? Um, I do see some parallels um, in terms of uh, the rhetoric that has been coming out of the White House, portraying the media as the opposition, uh, portraying the media as a political tool rather than an independent uh, 
force in society, an independent institution. Um, that is something that governments in, in Hungary and Poland and elsewhere have, have tried to do. They've tried to portray the media as um, just another political party, essentially, one that they can attack um, and one that they can set aside. Um, and uh, by doing that, um, they are undermining a check on their power. Now, the U.S. media um, is in a very different position than media organizations in a place like Hungary. In Hungary, um, a newspaper can't survive financially, uh, or it's very difficult for a newspaper to survive financially without government advertisements. State money um, is still very important in this economy, even though it's a, technically a free market economy. In the U.S., um, newspapers have their own sources of funding. They have readers who are willing and able to pay for subscriptions in a way that in this region readers are not. Um, and so the U.S. media, despite the rhetoric coming out of the White House, is still in a much, much better position to take on um, even uh, um, a government that is not friendly um, to the press. Hmm. Yeah, so it sounds like if, if you were to recommend uh, one act of resistance against the administration, it would be to buy a subscription. To, <laughs> Absolutely. To, yeah, great. Um, well, this has been a very interesting discussion, Lily. Um, thank you. And and if there's anything, you're you're headed to Budapest now, or to Bucharest, not Budapest, <laughs> right? You're in Budapest now, I'm in, right? Yes, I'm thinking of uh, going to Romania to see um, what is going on there. There have been huge protests against corruption. Um, that is also actually um, an interesting thing to watch in relation to uh, the Trump administration because the U.S. government has played a big role in encouraging reforms and um, anti-corruption uh, reforms in particular in Romania. And so uh, it will be interesting to see whether the State Department under President Trump will continue those efforts or whether they will withdraw a bit from Romania, from you know taking an interest in Romania's reforms as well. Yeah, certainly. Well, and, uh, you know, I've thought the same thing about from my seat in Ukraine, um, thinking about the e-declarations that happened here. It's hard to imagine a Trump administration doing the same thing, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> all right. Well, on that note, thank you for your time. Thank you. And uh, good luck with all of your future endeavors, Lily. <laughs> thank you, Nina. That's it for this month's episode. I'll be back next month from Warsaw with Christian Davies diving into what's been going on in Poland for the past year. Thanks for listening. And if you're not yet subscribed to the Wikipedia Weekly, you can do that at tinyletter.com slash W-I-C-Z-I-P-E-D-I-A and get your weekly Eastern Europe fix in your inbox every Sunday. I'm Nini Jankowicz, and this has been the Wikipedia Podcast.